Welcome to this week's Fit for Purpose podcast. Uh, Great to have you listening. This week we're interviewing Professor David Green. He's the Vice Chancellor of the University of Worcester. And I think the conversation that we're going to have today is really about what levelling up means to a part of the country that often we don't necessarily think in the context of the levelling up debate, but actually for which levelling up is absolutely vital. And and David, welcome to the podcast. I think it's fair to say that you're a long time person who's passionate about social mobility, but tell us a little bit about the University of Worcester and the kinds of students you have at the university. Well, Justine, uh, the University of Worcester was founded in 1946 as an emergency teacher training college just after World War II when there was a terrible shortage of teachers and almost all of the staff and most of the students in the early years were returning servicemen and women. And uh, that's meant that from its earliest days, the institution, which is now the University of Worcester, has been concerned with um, uh, education and with providing education for the people as a whole and with uh, trying to inspire people to to go further in life, to make more of their own potential. And you see this right through the history of the institution. And I've been the vice chancellor at the university since uh, 2003. And uh, I immediately experienced it on my, um, uh, when I was being interviewed, actually, I could feel this ethos, uh, an ethos of uh, wanting to help others to succeed and to get a good education and a great pride in the work which is done. So the university um, uh, has grown um, over the last uh, few years, um, since 2005, when we got full university title from 5,000 students to 10,000 students. Mm -hmm. Um, And 97% of our students come from uh, state education backgrounds of one kind or another. Uh, About two thirds of them are also mature on entry. So we have been uh, very concerned for um, such things as uh, trying to accredit prior experiential learning as well as Uh prior learning. Uh, We've long had relations with further education colleges in particular for access arrangements. Uh, We work closely because we're still a very big teacher training institution with over 500 schools. And of course, in today's architecture, instead of working with the local authorities, we work a lot with um, the multi-academy trusts. Mm -hmm. So we're used to working in partnership with people. We're very committed to the idea that every student who comes to the university, our job is to help them make the most of their potential. Uh, And we try to uh, uh, make sure that every student feels that they're the precious individual that they are and experiences that uh, while they're at the university. So we sort of say that, um, uh, what can you do about all sorts of things um, in terms of trying to make things better, uh, whether that's um, environmental sustainability Mm -hmm. or social mobility? Well, we say, start where you are, use what you have, do what you can, and we've got the university and we try to work with and for the community as a whole. And we'll come on to some of that community work later on, because I think, I mean, you just said it perfectly. It is such a fundamental part 
of the local community. But in terms of the, all of that outreach you talked about and the ways in which you're able to allow people who perhaps had a first go, of, as it were, education, but end up coming back to it. Um, I know that you have a contextualized admission scheme and, and tell for people who are not familiar with what that means actually tell us a little bit about what contextualized admissions is all about and and then for Worcester how you're using that to make sure you can get that potential into the university and able to study at a higher education level yeah well um the contextual admission scheme is a relatively recent addition to our sort of um armory of instruments if I can call it that way of trying to help promote participation uh, uh, across the uh, socioeconomic uh, spectrum in higher education. And uh, this specific scheme means that if you come from a, uh, a part of the country uh, done by postcode, a particular bit where participation in higher education is particularly low, then uh, if you are applying to the university uh, and your admission is dependent on getting particular grades, that you'll get what's called a contextual admissions offer and the uh, grades that you uh, are offered will be a little bit lower. Um, and uh, we still encourage people to work extremely hard to achieve their grades. Um, and we uh, actually provide a certain amount of support for that as well. So there are, in, with today's technology, there are sort of online lectures that people can come to. Uh, we also work with um, uh, schools and colleges in the region to try to help people in preparation for their A-levels and sort of offer um, master classes, to use an old-fashioned phrase, uh, which are helpful uh, to students, including young students. But I would like to sort of put the contextualized admissions offer uh, system um, in a, into a wider context, if I might, because I see this as only a, a modest part of uh, the work that we are doing. It, mm -hmm. It's an important part, but it's a modest part. And in order to promote successful participation in higher education, we also find working with partners very useful. And I'll give two examples. Um, one is that we work with a, a wonderful innovative organization called the Learning Institute, which operates mostly in Devon and Cornwall in um, uh, parts of those two very beautiful counties mm -hmm. which are more deprived um, in the back streets behind the seaside if I can put it that way in some of the old mining districts um, and there they work uh, mostly with uh, students who are uh, mature in their 20s and 30s uh, they want to uh, study a course in something like learning support become a higher level teaching assistant and uh, uh, we work with them. They've been through all of the universities between Cornwall and, and Worcester um, in terms of cooperation, but they've found in us a happy partner. and We've been working with them for over a decade, um, typically uh, educating uh, as many as 500 people in a single year um, to go on. And uh, there we've been doing a lot of admissions work, which is looking at people's prior experience. Mm -hmm. um, and their potential and trying to evaluate their potential to be successful in taking a course rather than just looking at their academic achievement. And we're just starting to work. Um, we've been working with them for some years, but we've got a much more developed partnership now with Dudley College, 
um, which is uh, widely recognized as one of the most deprived places in the country, Dudley, in the recent skills audit. Uh, three of the black country boroughs came out as the three worst areas in the country for mm -hmm. higher level skills. That's uh, Dudley, Wolverhampton and Sandwell. And um, Dudley, which is an, an outstanding uh, college, uh, we're their partner to develop a new higher education center to um, particularly specializing in health, which is a big strength of the university uh, and um, giving people the opportunity to study locally. The building is uh, uh, just got planning permission um, and we're working to get some courses uh, in Dudley uh, itself. So a lot of um, widening participation work involves take, taking education to people um, as well as uh, um, making sure that your admissions system is uh, friendly and taking into account the context in which people have earned their uh, qualifications. So it's um, so context takes into account what what also has happened um, to people in their life journey. And our idea very much about education is that it should inspire you for life. Um, and life includes uh, employment, includes a job, but of course it's more than that. And do you have to also then, as it were, follow the student once they're in and that there's additional work that you're doing really to make sure that they can thrive once they're starting to study and, and actually get the benefit of being yeah. on the course? Well, that's a very good question. And the answer to that is yes. And we've been doing it for a long time. And if I take a, a, an issue which has, is, I think, been highlighted for the whole country as a result of particularly of the coronavirus pandemic, which is young people who have mental health challenges, uh, problems, uh, sometimes acutely ill. We were one of the very first institutions in the country to have um, specialist mental health counselling for students uh, way back in 2004. Um, and uh, we are very proactive uh, in this area to because we've realized that a key reason for people not completing their course at university is that other aspects of life, as it were, rather than the simply academic and educational get in the way. Um, and uh, acute anxiety, acute depression, uh, self-harm are all issues um, which uh, with proper help um, there can be a lot of progress and people can be set on a, on a much happier path. So we're very um, concerned about that and then also very specific learning difficulties including uh, dyslexia um, and uh, any form of uh, physical impairment. Uh, there's a, a range of specialist services at the university uh, which we really try to help students uh, benefit from. So doing our best to help retention is very important. Um, this is uh, always a tricky matter because if you want to have good retention statistics, what you should do is you should never take on mature students. <laughs> yes, You exactly. should only take on uh, uh, 18 and 19 year olds because mm -hmm. the, but we uh, don't take that approach. We're much more interested in positive outcomes for people. And so we think it's very important to embrace the students who particularly are in practice are in their 20s and 30s uh, to come into uh, university uh, and have a good opportunity. There's something else which I might just mention, which sort of crosses over these two, qu 
questions that you just asked me, okay. Justine, which is in the last few years, we were presented with the following issue. We had about 37 students a year apply for our midwifery course for every place that we had, which as you will know, as a former Secretary of State for Education, were controlled to the one by the government. Mm -hmm. And uh, despite our best efforts, we couldn't get more places. Um, and uh, we found that we had, for instance, typically in any one year, a hundred students from a large further education college uh, about 25 miles away from us apply. And in a good year, one or two of them would get an interview to study mm -hmm. midwifery. Mm -hmm. So rather than just say, lucky us, we've got lots of applications, we thought, well, probably 10 of these students uh, could be midwives, but also some of them are applying from this particular college and they're not getting interviewed because they, they, were, they just weren't ready, but they might make very good midwives and mm -hmm. they might be interested in another uh, caring profession, nursing, mm -hmm. for example, or uh, physiotherapy, uh, because we often found that that was the case. So we've introduced having a foundation year in the therapies and the health therapies. And that's something which it's not so difficult to get into as it is to get into midwifery or paramedicine, for example, mm -hmm. but where the students can come to us for a year, they get issued, they get a course which they enroll on a course, they get admitted to a course, which does lead to a valuable um, mm -hmm. uh, qualification, but doesn't give them professional registration. Um, but then at the end of the first year, if they find out that it's working for them and they get up to a particular standard, we will give them the opportunity to interview, to go into midwifery or to go into um, uh, paramedicine or physiotherapy or one of our others, such as occupational therapy. So, it, so in other words, it can find a pathway, can't you? That's right. We found it very successful. And this is really starting to go very well. Um, and I think that that educational journey concept is a concept that's well worth having. I think so. I think it's absolutely crucial as well, um, particularly in the area of healthcare, where there's such a need, as we know, for more skilled and trained staff to enter a whole range of different parts of the NHS. And I guess during coronavirus, it was all about um, responding to a health emergency. But I suppose for the university itself, that must have had quite an impact in terms of you would have had, you know, your usual students in placements. But tell us a little bit about how having that big presence in healthcare was affected by coronavirus and, and actually the wider role that the university was able to play. Well, it was obviously very disruptive for us as for everybody else and, and dislocating, um, but we'd prepared for it a little. Um, because uh, we'd started discussing it when the University of Milan was closed, which was about six or eight weeks before mm -hmm. uh, the first lockdown happened. And so we were prepared from the university leadership point of view uh, to, um, to have that happen. And the first thing that we did uh, within a few days of lockdown was we offered to the NHS locally to have every bit of our equipment from our clinical skills center uh, and I believe we were the first university in the country to do this, and many, many others uh, mm -hmm. did the same thing also, um, so that our equipment went straight off into the front line, and they literally stripped the simulation center bare wow. and took every pair of uh, gloves, mm -hmm. um, every drip stand, every bed, um, uh, absolutely everything, all the paramedics' backpacks. 
Um, we obviously uh, did our best to um, keep our own community uh, safe, but that included supporting students who were uh, living in halls of residence. Um, a lot of people thought the university students could just go home. Well, the student composition at the University of Worcester includes students who come from care um, and uh, don't have a home to go to. The university is their home, um, so they didn't have another home to go to. Uh, it includes uh, students who uh, are estranged from their families. Uh, it includes a small number of international students who uh, couldn't travel at that point. So we had about 100 people living in the halls of residence and obviously we had to support them. Uh, and then as time went on, the government essentially um, uh, offered to, uh, to take for all our third year students in nursing, uh, in midwifery and the other caring professions and actually our third and second year students in paramedicine mm -hmm. to go and work now straight away in the front line and gave them the offer that they would uh, honor their placements later and that they would graduate later. So our um, final year students, which uh, that particular year actually happened to include a young man who was uh, shortlisted for nurse of the year, mm -hmm. um, uh, Ricky Baker, um, mm -hmm. that uh, that was, um, they mostly went in, um, they did a good job. And then of course we had to deal with the sort of educational side of it later. So uh, we certainly worked um, diligently on all of that. We also um, made sure that uh, the campus was as safe as is possible to be. And we, in the autumn period had 58% um, of our classes in person. And we managed to do all of that without having any epidemic of any kind. Uh, in our halls of residence. And I think the reason for that was that we were providing people with a degree of sociability in a proper socially distanced and safe way, mm -hmm. uh, rather than just uh, saying, stay in your bedrooms. Um, and uh, that was very successful. So we've gone through the whole pandemic without having any major epidemic. Like everybody else, we've got lots of Omicron cases at the, uh, in the last period. Um, fortunately, nobody in this recent phase has been uh, ill. Very sadly, within the first few weeks of the first lockdown starting, we lost one of our nursing students who um, went home and self-isolated at home and then died, uh, probably having contracted it on the wards, nobody knows. Uh, Julie Omar, who was a sister um, in, uh, in uh, the hospital in Redditch. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, that was a great sadness and a terrible. We awarded her degree posthumously mm -hmm. at um, uh, our uh, graduation ceremony, which we had in June of last year for the graduates of 2020, uh, one week after the restrictions ended. As soon as they ended, we had the graduation ceremony in Worcester Cathedral. And then we've also had graduation ceremony most recently for our graduates of 2021 in November at the normal time. So it's had a huge impact on the university, but we've made every contribution that we can to work with the community. And right now we're um, just creating a medical school which will uh, open its doors to students uh, in September, I'm delighted to stay. We haven't got any funded places. So any influence you have, Justine, please get them. But the local health service is so keen to have our doctors just as they are to have our nurses and midwives but actually they've just written to me today and they're um, uh, providing funding from their own budget uh, for 10 students. And we're hoping to uh, uh, more than double that over the next uh, couple of weeks.
So at least we'll be able to start with a decent um, initial cohort of UK students and hopefully the government will soon come forward with the money to enable us to educate many more medical students to serve the people locally. And we certainly need them, there's no doubt about that. So it's an absolutely crucial move. But you mentioned the community and obviously one of the things I did want to ask you about was the hive. And that's been such an important part of how the yeah. university's built its relationship with the local community. So I wanted to, to get your take on, on how you saw the hive, you know, tell people what it's all about and, and how it works for that wider community that can access it. Well, thank you very much for asking that. And um, it's, it's a very appropriate time to uh, uh, ask that question because it's nearly 10 years since Her Majesty the Queen came to open the hive uh, in her um, uh, diamond jubilee year uh, in 2012. And the hive is the first university and public library in the country. It's a very impressive uh, building. It's won, I think, 27 or 28 awards, uh, many of which are for its environmental sustainability, but it's become a real icon. And Worcester, of course, is um, uh, fortunate to have a most marvelous cathedral on the most beautiful riverside site. Um, uh, but I think um, people now think of Worcester as the marvelous uh, historic cathedral, but they also think of the Hive as the second notable uh, building. And, um, and I should say to people, if you drive through Worcester, you literally can't miss it, yeah. pretty much. Thank you very so much. It's covered. It's very in, prominent. It's, it's covered in an inert alloy, which ha has a golden <laughs> appearance. Uh, so it looks like it's a golden covered building, but it's um, it's an extremely effective uh, copper alloy. Um, and uh, so thank you for that. Uh, so it's right at the heart of the hive as a children's library. Um, and we designed it deliberately with our partner, the County Council, to make it, uh, uh, you know, the children's library a really big emphasis mm -hmm. um, so that the, the children would feel that the library and also the university were for them. And uh, that comes out of our philosophy of trying to make our facilities as available as possible to the community so mm -hmm. that uh, people uh, locally who come in from the earliest age, you know, they come in and do uh, now in the hive uh, bumps and babies and bounce and rhyme. And they think that uh, the university is for them. And then they see uh, uh, bigger, older people uh, who might be like uh, big brothers and sisters uh, studying and they think that they too can study. So it's got to a widening participation right at its heart. And the County Council and the University have combined all our book stock uh, together and we've put all our teaching resources um, for, for instance, for teacher training there. So if you want to uh, run a play group and you want to, uh, for instance, I don't know, do something on uh, uh, celebrating Diwali, for example, mm -hmm. um, you'll find a box of materials there which will help you with uh, uh, primary school children or early years age children. Uh, to celebrate Diwali and our teacher training students will use this on their teaching practice. But if you're a mum or a dad and you want to run something like this or you're running a play group, you can just come in and borrow these materials. So it's made some uh, apparently specialist materials which wouldn't generally be available, be available on a much wider basis. And schools of course uh, have organized visits coming into the hive 
Um, there's been one school in a very deprived part of Worcester where uh, the uh, mothers in particular came to the head teacher and said, what can we do um, to help our children? Um, and she obviously said, read to them is one of the things. And then it turned out that a number of the mums reading wasn't very good. So she developed mm -hmm. a program to help them. And, uh, but in terms of the children, one of the things was get them a reading ticket at the hive so that the, the child gets a, a reading ticket and take them to some of the activities which take place there and then get it ticked off. And that's your, you know, being a good parent um, and helping your child. And then she realized that for the parent's certificate, um, they had to get a reading ticket themselves for the, uh, for the hive and for the county council. And of course it's free, it's available to people, it's their right as a citizen. And so it's a great pleasure to go into the hive and you see uh, uh, bumps and babies going on. <laughs> uh, you also see students studying very productively and um, uh, people reading the newspapers. Um, and uh, using a public library in a modern imaginative way. And it's also been very helpful digitally because of course there's a lot mm -hmm. of digital poverty and inequality. And we've both got advisors in the hive um, and very good technology, but uh, we've got lots of availability again for free for people so that um, those who haven't got a computer at home, uh, they can come in and use the material very well. So it's tried to put our resources at the heart of the community. It's been very successful and it's made me um, personally, as well as the university, very popular, particularly with grandparents, Justine, because <laughs> it's, uh, it's free. Uh, all grandparents want to have their, their smaller grandchildren with, uh, with a book in their hand. And there is a lovely yeah. cheese wall to go and read your book wow. in as a small child. So it's very mm -hmm. lovely and participative. And also, of course, there's no sugar. So it's fantastic. It sounds amazing. And I suppose it's really just developed such a different relationship with the local community to have you inextricably part of it through the hive. And that's presumably just steadily deepened all of those relationships. It's kind of made it one community in a way, hasn't it? The university and, and that wider Worcester community. Yes, it, it has. And there was quite a lot of opposition to it. Um, uh, at the beginning from uh, there were some people inside the university who were not happy about giving up our library mm -hmm. uh, and they thought that the students would be unhappy but I have to say uh, our score in the learning resources uh, section of the um, national student survey has just gone up and up mm -hmm. um, and we've we've ended up with a very high score um, uh, so that's all been very positive and it's given a, a very different uh, approach, you know, the sort of town and gown divide, which uh, uh, you often read about. I don't want to say it's not there. And of course, there's always somebody who thinks that way because, you know, it's a broad spectrum of opinion. But overwhelmingly, relationships are very good and positive. And the University Community Forum, which we've had uh, uh, since the very first year I started in 2003, uh, it meets regularly, uh, very happy uh, discussions generally. Uh, working together and by the way it was very useful in helping us to negotiate the coronavirus um, uh, pandemic when uh, you know there was a local councillor who said students should all stay away from Worcester and um, you know the community forum said no 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 the students should come back they'll behave responsibly responsibly and of course we want them back because they're our future teachers they're our future nurses 
and um, so it's proved to be. So uh, the hive has been very helpful. Well, it's certainly a, a huge legacy um, for Worcester. And, and finally, David, I, I want to ask <clears throat> you about your own career, actually. Um, you've ended up being a vice chancellor and I mean, doing amazing things at Worcester and, and really having a huge impact on levelling up through all of that work. But tell us a little bit about your career journey and whether you, you ever anticipated, you know, when you were much, much younger that you'd be running a university about now. Not everyone has that as, as an aspiration. How did your journey go? Well, thanks. Thanks uh, for asking that. So I, um, as you can probably tell from my accent, I... Uh, I started life in the United States. My dad's a scientist. Um, mm -hmm. He was uh, uh, working at MIT. Um, and um, anyway, I, I came along. And uh, I was, um, I read economics at the University of Cambridge um, and graduated uh, at the age of 20. And um, I did reasonably well, and I could have gone on to a career in research. Uh, this is pertinent to being a vice chancellor, but I decided I didn't want to do that. I wanted to uh, to change things. I was very passionate, at, uh, even at that age, about uh, uh, what I suppose we now call uh, leveling up and widening participation um, uh, and uh, tackling inequality. So all the people I graduated with um, headed off into the city, um, and I went off to work for Shelter in Scotland, the housing charity, as their research and campaigns officer, that's the wow. only one. And of course, I learned a huge amount from doing that work. Um, and then I ended up moving back to London. I stayed in that type of field for a few years, uh, but um, I wanted to go back to economics, which was the subject I'd chosen to study because I was uh, very concerned about, um, uh, from the age of about 13 onwards, about prospects for people in the developing world. Um, and I'd worked a bit for a consultancy, uh, which was specializing in, in uh, promoting the trade interests of developing countries. Uh, so I wanted to go back into economics and I saw that there was an opportunity at, well, at the time was South Bank Polytechnic uh, to teach night school um, and to teach on a business studies program which I found was the only uh, part-time evening business studies program um, in the country. Anyway, I applied for a job there uh, as a lecturer. Um, and despite the fact that I only had a tiny bit of experience, that it was a very competitive job. I think 75 people applied for it. I got it and became just about the youngest lecturer mm -hmm. on the staff at the age of wow. uh, 26 um, and a bit. Uh, and um, then I stayed very passionately engaged in all sorts of community events in the part of East London in which I lived, uh, in Hackney, um, probably uh, until my early 40s. And then I just became, you know, I, I, for some reason or another, people thought I was quite good at running things, um, <laughs> as well as very concerned for educational quality. So I just did a lot of that um, uh, type of, you know, I became head of economics, I sort of organized timetables, I developed a lot of new classes and courses, uh, I worked as a sort of expert um, in going to other universities to what we call validate their courses, mm -hmm. and I stayed with this broader conception of things, and then I became dean at the Leeds Business School, which turned out to end up being the 
get classified as the best uh, business school, new new university business school in the country, because it's Leeds Metropolitan University. And so I greatly enjoyed all of that. And then I thought, and it was only really when I became a dean, I thought mm, I'd quite like to have a go at running a university. There's a lot of things I'd like to like to change, uh, as well as things which are good, which I'd like to make sure do do better. And then I was fortunate enough to be appointed here in Worcester. Wow. And it sounds as ever like it was a, a steady journey, but not necessarily one that you you would have ever planned in a way that, that you had to sort of you took some opportunities. But you also I think what's interesting, you followed what you were really interested and passionate about, didn't you? And that's probably been quite an important part of how your careers developed. Well, thank you very much, Justine. And I certainly have done my best to do that. And, um, you know, I'm uh, the idea for the hive, for instance, uh, really, I think, uh, came to me when I was a student at Cambridge. And I went back to collect something which I'd left mm -hmm. in a pavilion because I was very keen on sport. And um, I remember driving back to Cambridge. It was the summer and uh, I could see the groundsman mowing the grass and uh, I waved at him and he just kept on, uh, the, the fields were locked and I couldn't get in and he just kept on driving and I realized that those plague fields were not going to be used by anybody until we privileged students at Cambridge came back in October. And I thought the children of Cambridge must hate the university and I remember vowing to mm -hmm. myself that I ever got into a position of influence, I was going to make sure that the university was as open as possible. And um, I've tried to do that. Uh, and uh, my colleagues have been very tolerant and kind. And uh, we've worked together to do some things which I think are very special, but which could be copied in many other places. And I'm sure other people will do them much better. But it's all based on that thing of working together and giving every individual a real opportunity to uh, advance themselves and this inspired for life idea, you know, do well through the life course and help people thrive. And I think that's a brilliant point to, to end, really. Um, we're so delighted that, that yourself and the University of Worcester are part of the levelling up goals because it is exactly the same ethos that we share. And, and I agree, a lot of our work that we're all doing together is to take those great ideas that are already working on the ground, like the hive, and really allow us to spread them across a much wider community and country that I think has a real appetite now for more and more levelling up solutions. David, it's been fantastic having you on the podcast. So thank you very, very much. And I hope for people listening, it's been fantastic to listen to Professor David Green of the University of Worcester. Thank you, David. Thank you.